thanks so much for joining us today. This is the 11th hour lecture series for the Summer Writing Fest. All right, so I hope you are enjoying your classes this week. Um, I have really been enjoying curating this lecture series. They just keep getting better. My name's Rachel Yoder. I live here in Iowa City. Um, a true pleasure to be able to do this. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our speaker today. Sandra Schofield is the author of seven novels that include Beyond Deserving, a finalist for the National Book Award, Occasions of Sin, a memoir, a book of essays about family titled Mysteries of Love and Grief, and a recent book of stories, Swim, Stories of the 60s. She has also written two craft books for fiction writers, The Scene Book, a primer for the fiction writer, and The Last Draft, The Novelist's Guide to Revision. Sandra is on the faculty of the Low Residency Solstice MFA program at Pine Manor College. She is also an intrepid traveler, an avid painter, and a besotted grandmother. Today, Sandra will present the talk, Notan, How Visual Art Informs Writing, in which she will discuss ancient Japanese artistic concepts that can inform our modern day writing practice. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Schofield. So this started out thinking about Notan, and of course it has expanded a little bit to other um, concepts. but. Let me just start by saying that in May, I um, took an intensive painting course in Norfolk, just um, north of London, England. And um, it, the, the idea of the course, we painted two paintings a day this big. <laughs> the idea of the course was basically to practice and learn a procedure for approaching painting rather than coming up with ideas or whatever. So we did copy work, but with the idea that it wasn't necessary to copy exactly. It was just that we, that way we didn't have to make something up. And the, um, the, the three stages of the painting uh, were to paint a translucent layer, then a turbid layer, and then opaque. So let me explain those. Um, the translucent, as you would imagine, means that um, the color is kind of see-through. It's mostly um, it's the kind of paint that you think of, well, like you're painting through a window or something. Anyway, so, so we would paint kind of the, in no turn terms, the, the dark of the painting, the form in but it's very, it's very light. And then the, in the next stage, the turbid, turbid just means that still a kind of translucent paint, but to which some opaqueness has been added so that there's a, um, more of a consistency to it. Then we'd start to, um, to refine the painting and to get the shapes um, detailed to put in um, almost like outlines and blocks, with a lot of blocks of color. And then once you have that, you really have the painting. And the last stage, opaque paint that you don't see through and that, and that stands out more, 
then begin to apply the opaque paint on top of that. And it's not that that's like any kind of brand new concept, but the idea that we did it in such an orderly fashion and that we knew exactly what to do, um, that and the fact that we used um, supports, canvases that had um, a chalk gesso on them so that things dried really quickly, because oil painters say, you, you did a painting in two hours, and that's why we were able to do it. I just got into a zone with it, and I found myself painting and thinking about writing. Who knows? It, you can't help yourself. And I thought, you know, this is just like what I do when I write fiction. I start almost always with a summary. I'm a great, and any of you who know my book, The Last Draft, know that I'm like the champion of the summary, um, both as a way to capture story and to, in revision, to check story. And, and the summary doesn't tell you the details. It doesn't have the, quote, color of the story, but it tells what happens. And then, once I have the summary, I can, begin, I can do a draft of my, of my fiction. And when I have a draft, then I can go through to, in painter terms, sharpen the edges, sharpen the color, um, make sure that I have the, the balance of things that I want. And I, as I, I guess I thought those things because, I, as I said, I'm a writer, but also later I thought, well, I'm going to be talking about these exact things. I'm glad, I'm glad that it makes sense to me. But my original um, impetus for wanting to talk about art is my love for notan design. And as it says in the handouts, key features, the key thing is that there's a strong um, value uh, grouping, darks and lights. So the, the picture here, if you want to look up the original, it, I put it at the top, Claude Monet's Etretat. And the, this is all a very dark blue. And the part that looks white is actually um, quite brilliant yellows. But when you put that in black and white, it comes out that the yellows don't, they're bright enough and, and light enough that they don't even show up as, as color. So we're starting with that very simple concept that there is a contrast between dark and light. And this, obviously, is the opposite of having values scattered all over the place. And when you first start painting, often you, you just respond to color and not to value. You know, you've got yellow, you've got blue, you've got green. It's so exciting, and it's purple. And then somewhere along the line, if you take a class or you read in a book, I don't think you'd think of it otherwise. You think, well, I wonder what it looks like in black and white. And yay, iPhone is perfect because you can take a black and white picture. And sometimes you'll see that what you have is a kind of mass with very low gradations. And it's an essential concept in painting that painting is all about value and value contrast. That there, 
the, the teacher in, in this class would go on and on about how the brain responds to sharp contrast, etc. And I did a, you know, I've done a lot of reading of uh, books and gone through umpteen million. I'm basically self-taught, so I've read all kinds of books on painting. They all say the same thing, that it is value that makes the painting. And so I started thinking, I wonder, I wonder how much that translates if the brain responds to value visually. Could it be that the brain responds to value contrast um, cognitively, intellectually? Um, and it starts to make sense. Lights against darks, um, and, and I, I'm going to talk about all kinds of ways that contrasts exist in prose. Um, but it's also essential that in No. 10 that there is an organic design, that it's not just an accident that there's dark and light, but that it's done so that the things that you want to emphasize, that's where you draw the eye. And the things that are the background, that are less important, simply support the major things. Um, and you want that pattern of dark and light to be interesting. So you know, a painting that's just white, black isn't going to be very interesting. Or white, black, white, black. It's, it's, it's the design of the values. And that design always drawing your eye to the part of the painting that matters the most. So we talk in, uh, about composition in painting. Um, and the very first question is, is obviously a question to ask yourself when you're writing. Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I painting this? Why am I writing this? And really considering the impulse that leads you into this prose, the impulse that leads you into this painting. I, um, I live in um, Montana, and I'm not especially a great mountain person, but I grew up in West Texas, and I, I swear my sensibility is, is built on the sky. And lo and behold, we have beautiful skies, we, you, depends on the time of the year, but this time of year, I listen to the PBS News Hour, and then I pop up out of my seat and run to the front porch to watch the sky begin to turn. The gorgeous clouds, pink and yellow and blue and white skies. Um, so why, why would I paint um, a landscape portrait full of sky? Because I think it's beautiful because it um, uplifts my spirit, um, because it makes me feel both specific to where I am, but universal, that everywhere on Earth someone has sky, and they look up at it in the evening, just like I do, and, and I wonder what they see, and if they take joy in it the way I do. And by the way, I don't think I ever looked at the damn sky till I started painting. Um, my husband makes jokes about it all the time because we go driving around and I say, oh, stop, stop, look at that color. Oh, stop, stop, I want to take a picture, etc." He says, it's like you woke up 10 years ago. And it's true, it's true. And, and 
the same thing happens with writers. You know, I, all of you are here because one way or the other, regardless of genre, you love images and you love story. And as a consequence, you see and, and appreciate images that other people probably aren't thinking about, that they miss, and you see story where other people just see half and chance action or, I mean, they don't stop to think about it. Um, fortunately, they can buy your books and then they'll know what, how you see story. So that's, that's really the essential question, is why? And uh, I chose this image of um, Etretat, I guess that's how you say it, because he painted it over and over and over again. Um, you think of him, Monet, as painting the water lilies and so forth. But before he had, had that acreage and did that work, he, he did this a lot. And other painters painted that same, that same image. There's something about it. So as I mentioned, you, you're thinking always about where to take the eye and how to create a focal point. And the focal point is the essence of the painting at the, the point at which the, you want the eye to go. And so they'll say, well, don't have a path going out of the picture because it draws the eye. And I, 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 don't, I don't really understand that. I don't even know if I believe it, but I abide by it because I figure more people know about it than me. Um, you, you can draw uh, attention to it by lines that converge, by increased detail, and by hard edges. Well, I don't think it would take much translation to, to realize how you do that in prose, that um, lines that converge, the, the um, whether it is the ideas of an essay that move toward one another to the, to the argument or revelation, whether it is two characters who are on different journeys in life who end up in the same place in conflict. That certainly creates focal point. Um, hard edges. In any kind of prose, there are, there are places that you move through without a lot of, um, well, hard edges, what can I say, that, that don't have the kind of emphasis that other parts of the prose have. So I'm going to back up a minute and say, well, so what? Why is she up there talking about all this, saying these obvious things? Because to me, it's fun to think this way. Um, I think as a writer, um, never, never mind that I'm still excited about painting, but, it, but as a writer, it's what you do. You look at things and you connect them, and you draw um, all kinds of metaphors, and, and are always interpreting and thinking about what you see. And that's, I mean, that's part of the talent and the interest of, of being a writer, and it's for sure um, the interest and talent of painters. So to see the parallels is just, to me, entertainment. But it is also instructive because it's just one more way to remind you of some of the things you need to think about.
Um, I worked with a, a student at, in my MFA program last semester by the name, name of Mark Jednizewski. And Mark is um, a mariner. He's a mar he is a mariner engineer. And he goes out for 90 days at a time on a boat. And then he comes home for 90 days. And then he goes out for 90 days again. And he's married. Um, anyway, I mention him because I just saw him. And I told him that I was trying to prepare for this talk. And that the time during which I was going to prepare was taken up by the fact that I was filling in. I had two emergencies during the two weeks between when I was here. One, a, a health emergency at home. And then I raced off to Boston to teach for four days because somebody there had a health emergency. And I told him what I was writing about. I said, at least talk to me about it so I can get something going. And he said, why don't you just read from my critical essay that I did with you because it was a collaboration. So with his permission, I'm going to read a page from it. This is his discussion of NOTAM. We, we just had a great time um, during last semester. NOTAN is the Japanese word meaning dark light. That is, interaction between the positive and negative space. It's an ancient concept that in, can inform a writer's choice in building the framework that holds an idea, image, or action. Instead of arbitrarily choosing detail, a writer with no tan in mind will have four options. What to include in the foreground, what to exclude from the foreground, what to include in the background, and what to exclude from the background. Now those are primary considerations in a painting. And really, until Mark and I worked on talked about this concept and worked on it last semester, I hadn't thought of it that way. That when you are writing, every story that you would tell has a front story and a back story. And one of the big problems that I see in apprentice writing is the, the wrong balance or the lack of balance between those two things. How I, many years ago, I was on a committee to, to read um, manuscripts for a prize, or for giving fellowships. And I read, are you ready, 400 manuscripts. And it was over, I had a whole summer to do it in. And by, by the time I had read about 30, I started a chart because I wanted to make a note of how many mentioned that they were all fiction how many brought up backstory early in the story. And then I reduced it to how many brought up backstory by the end of the second page. 70%. I don't know what that means, but I know that most of those 70% were not the ones that got onto my recommendation list. In some cases, that it worked, but for the most part, it was a failure to keep the foreground, the focal point, long enough for you to be connected with it before you go back to the backstory. So in a painting, if you're painting a landscape and you've got a tree that's way back there and it's got all its blossoms and fruit hanging off of it or whatever, what happened to the foreground? 
what happened to what is in front of you and what you meant to do? And this is an earmark of amateur painting that the, that, uh, the amateur painter maybe hasn't yet learned not to have as much detail in the background as in the foreground. And I think it is also a sign of the amateur writer and something you just have to learn. Anyway, it says, um, foreground and background are refigured not as important and unimportant, but as explicit and implicit. And I love those two words. As soon as explicit, right up in front and in your face, implicit, implied, mentioned, uh, something that's there, but subtle. Uh, that makes a lot of difference in fiction, whether the background is implicit or explicit. And there are times when the background has a part of it that is so important it has to be brought into the foreground. But that's another lecture. An author could never include everything in a piece of writing, so omission is inevitable. But why keep a piece of prose intentionally spare? Don't details add to the to um, the experience? The intuitive answer is yes, and the considered one is some details are best implied rather than made explicit. Absence can provoke reader engagement. If prose allows and provokes a reader to amplify the text, the deepening of the reader's involvement works to create texture and complexity and solicits interpretation. An artist with an understanding of Notan sees the value in what is not. There is utility in making the background, the empty places, work toward the intended effect of the art. So we put words on a page and we call it a story, but the space without words is part of the story too. It's a place of rest, transition, and suggestion. The utility of space is easier to see in poetry, where line and stanza breaks are significant to the rhythm of the poem. It isn't easy to apply the logic of poetic space to a story, but it's possible and it's instructive. Prose requires engagement, but it also requires rest. Paragraph shifts, for example, create movement, emphasis, and digression. And many times in working with um, fiction writers, I tell them, I want you to now go through your entire draft considering only your paragraph shifts. What would be the effect of not shifting at the point where you did? And is there any place within a paragraph, thinking like of half page paragraphs, quarter page paragraphs, is there any place that the story would be bettered by having a paragraph shift? And just, there's no answer. The answer is only in the impulse and consideration of the writer. But I think most writers don't think about the effect of paragraph shifts. But this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about um, contrast, um, what's implicit, explicit. Sh uh, shape and space is a lot of that. And, and even to pick up, um, this is assuming, of course, that you print your pages out from the computer. Lay them out and look at them. Where do you have density? Where do you have 
more spacing. I would think that the place where you have more density would probably have more interiority, would probably have more textured action. The place where you have more space might have a faster pace, would be something that moves along, whereas the other one has more rest in it. But you can actually see that in a document if, if you lay it out and say, Is that, did I do that right? Is that what I want? Um, so the empty space helps the reader navigate the story, just as tone and inference do. We can think of a story's meaning, then, as being conveyed in explicit and implicit ways. In many stories, contrast works out as now and then. And sometimes in complex story, the real story is what happened then, not now. And the trick of the story is to make enough story in the now that when we finally get the real story from then, it fits, it illuminates, it surprises, it brings things to the foreground. We also consider how passages are emphasized, made more dramatic and surprising by the abutment to the text where meaning is only suggested. No tan of a story is sometimes just a matter of what is emphasized and what is not, even if they are both on the same page. So you want to look at what are the hot spots in your prose? Where are the places that you want to have impact? Everything else is about getting to those places and falling away from them. How do they stand out? Is it by the language? Is it by where they are on the page? Those are all questions. And, they're, and in, in some ways, they are visual. In art, something always has first position, and all else demarcates and supports it. I'll say that again. In art, something always has first position, and everything else demarcates it and supports it. Is that not true of a poem? Is that not true of an essay, a story, a novel? I think so. So using Notan to analyze a story creates an awareness of contrast and how the contrasting elements interact with one another. Though the connections made, I better move along here, of the space of the page, the elements of fiction comprise an arrangement one, an artful one, that can be described in terms of Notan. Here are some examples. Character, without who there's no story. Contrast, and not just conflict, between a main and secondary character is a useful way to build tension. Not that they're at odds with each other necessarily, but that they're different. Um, and, and I do see apprentice stories where there's not enough demarcation between characters. You could get them mixed up if you called them all X. You wouldn't know which one was XA and which one was XB. A short story must be written, ah, here I am, so that every single sentence is crucial to the desired effect. Text about a secondary character, or even better, description of a secondary character by a primary one, can contribute to unity in the story. Setting. Setting can be understood as the when and where of the story. On the surface, it can be interpreted as a location and time period. But it also can be powerful when it creates contrast between the past and present. Past can be thought of as backstory. 
present as a timeline of the story or front story. But sometimes what is happening in front story doesn't mean anything unless you know what happened in the past. So then you have to make these decisions about how much of the backstory do I give and when do I get it? Is it in this part of the painting or this part of the painting? Is it a strong line or is it a gentle one that emerges? These are visual questions in a painting, but they're, they're intellectual questions and, and I think emotional questions in the story. Um, a writer has to be careful not to overload the now with too much history or exposition, just as a painter would not paint too many details. Theme is not so simple to break down as contrast, but if we say that theme is what a story is about, then one contrasting pair of elements at a writer's disposal is literal and figurative language. Figurative language is the negative space in this example because it requires the reader to fill in information due to metaphor's indirect nature. And I would say that's powerful because it engages the reader, it makes the reader work, and not just go across the surface. And in dialogue, a whole different um, discussion, but in dialogue, we should see contrast between what is said and what is not. Good dialogue is rich with subtext, meaning there is hidden meaning beneath the spoken words, especially when the subtext is filled with suppressed conflict, right? And so I don't probably need to explain that. Subtext creates tension because the reader is aware of dissonance between what is spoken and unspoken. Um, playwrights like Harold Pinter and David Hare are famous for exactly that biting subtext. Um, Charles Baxter points out that in some stories, such as those as Richard Bausch, what is going, there is what is going on now and what happened back then, and the tension of the dialogue is what is in what isn't being said about back then. So that the story ultimately becomes the power of the emergence of the history impacting the present story. He says, um, the inability to be direct creates a subterranean chasm within the story where genuine desires hide beneath the superficial ones. And I think of, oh, there's a painting, I'm, I'm having a slippage of the mind, somebody famous, anyway, who, who is sick, and the doctor is there, and, the, and that's the painting. The doctor is doctoring the famous person. And in the background, in the blackness of the background, are these faint, faint devils. They're going to get him. And there's so much power. And you know, people walk by that, paint, that painting, and they don't even see it. But when you stand and look at it, they come clear, and they're, they're scary, and they're threatening. It's very powerful. To try to come up with something analogous to that in writing would be pretty powerful. Um, let me find out where I was. Oh, piercing subtext is an earmark of writers like Hemingway, Raymond Carver, Amy Hempel. 
Amy Hempel says that minimalism came to denote what reviewers felt was missing in fiction, conventional plot or obvious emotion. But her strategy for writing stories is to open during a moment in the aftermath of crisis and then go from there. She uses juxtaposed snippets of scene and images rather than sustained narrative. Think of impressionism. Think of, of paintings, I'm, I'm not getting into abstraction, but paintings that do break up the images rather than making them literal, um, even to the point of, of what's it called? Vibration. Vibration is um, like when you put blue and yellow next to each other. You have lots of dots or marks or lines, and you really see vibration. I mean, you see vibration in all the impressions, but you really see it in Van Gogh, um, the Van Gogh. You, um, you really see how he uses, and he uses a lot of primary colors next to each other to create the tension of the colors both demanding your attention at the same time and, in a sense, becoming another color. Um, and I should never put this down. All right. Um, all right, so Hemingway famously used subtext in the story Hills Like White Elephants. The story is set in a train station in a desolate region of Spain. A man and woman are having a conversation. Probably most of you know this story. The man wants the woman to have an abortion, but he never says so. The reader understands because just enough information is revealed. And the scene wields power because both characters harbor hidden sentiments, each resisting the other. So there's power struggle between these two people who never say what the power struggle is about. And um, you're engaged with the text, even though in Hemingway's style, you're seeing it, you're distanced from it because you have no interiority. Um, Amy Hempel's story in the tub is about a woman who, who feels her heart skip a beat, and she tries to find a quiet place so she can hear it again. The front story doesn't have much depth when summarized. The meaning is built in the way she layers the back story. You see, as a when the narrator was a young girl, she searched for quiet environments. And even though she relished solitude as a girl and sought it often, she now cannot find a place quiet enough to hear her own heartbeat. And that's the tension of the story. She eventually discovers that beneath the surface of the water in the bathtub, she can. The front story lacks urgency if the back story is not the context. And one might interpret that the real story lies in, in the back story. Both of these writers are labeled minimalist. The complexity of their story is built with perfect details. And what a trick that is, whether you're painting or writing, to have perfect details, but not too many. Because if you have too many, you have a busy story. You have a story full of sidelines, just as it, the, the mark of an amateur painter is too many details. Um, so, consider front story, back story, and their relationship. Consider dialogue and inference. And consider the balance of scene with summary, which is another kind of contrast in a story, whether it is compressed 
are played out. Um, talking about Notan also brings up the thought of other aspects of composition that have parallels in prose. For example, in art we talk about the mass in the painting, such as, um, let's say, a rounded hill, or a great sprawling tree, or a building. Where we place the mass makes a difference in how the viewer sees the painting, especially because we also make a choice about how to draw the eye to or away from it, which we call a path in the picture. Any narrative, any narrative, and I would say this is true of essays too, has a paramount scene toward which everything is driven and then falls away. Where you place the scene in the narrative makes a difference in how it affects the reader. If you place the mass at the beginning, perhaps a dramatic action leads to a sequence of consequences, and the story is about the consequences. If the, if the mass is late in the narrative, our story turns out to be an inevitable movement toward that mass to the most dramatic and consequential scene. So where you place your big scenes makes a tremendous amount of difference. Structure is part of all art. Secondly, we also talk about balance in design, a kind of equipoise of what appears above and below the horizontal line. So you understand what I'm saying? The line that goes across what's above it, what's below it. Where do you want the eye to go? Is it a, is it a paint, landscape painting about the sky? Is it a painting about the rocks and the river? Is it a painting about the figures down here? You decide that and, and you illuminate it by the balance that you develop. It's what pulls the eye of the, of the viewer, just as in a story, um, the balance of scene and summary, of high drama and low drama, um, of detail and compression. All of these things pull the reader through and manipulate the reader. We say that every item of a picture has a degree of pulling power, a magnet of potency and strength. What draws attention to itself detracts from other parts proportionately. I think this is probably foreign to the way a writer generally thinks about a story or essay, but it offers another way to evaluate the composition of prose. Many years ago, I saw a TV documentary in which Eudora Welty demonstrated how she would cut a story apart and lay it all over the floor and then appraise it and move the sections apart. And it had a profound effect upon me in terms of how I see the composition of, of story. You consider, what's the best entry point? What's the best path to the climactic scene? Where do I want this reader to feel most deeply engaged? Is my desire for the reader's engagement reflected in the length of the scene or the density of the prose? So on. A painter thinks about the axis of a composition, the, the point around which the figures or objects revolve. Early classes, by the way, I'm not still reading Mark's essay. I just want you to know that I stopped that a long time ago. Early classicists like Raphael um, favored the balance of equal measures. That's an actual phrase, the balance of equal measures. 
as in his Sistine Madonna and Leonardo's The Last Supper, in which two groups of three persons each are posed on either side of a pivotal figure. That was once, that's a classic design, and it is a design of, of equipoise. Another composition approach is to consider transition of line, in which an object is carried across or delivered to another object across a line or space. The transitional line itself is powerful, say, from land into sky, from water onto ground, from figures into absence of figures. Does this resonate for you in terms of prose? Where do where you go from description to um, action? Where you go from action to reflection or commentary or any kind of response? So if you think of your composition in increments and direction, you can make them more powerful. And what is powerful in a story is not just a matter of plot point, but the way it is built within the construction of the text. You, you, look at, um, you look at an essay and you see um, a, a sequencing of ideas, a development of ideas, a pattern of ideas that, that arrive at some kind of insight or sometimes an, it's an emotional arrival. Same thing in a story. You, you are carried through um, a series of experiences with the story in order to arrive, you, writer hopes, at, um, at, at a place in your emotional space that you weren't before you started writing the story. And I'm sure all of you have had the experience of reading a story or a novel that shakes you and you, you can't just walk, you walk away from it and it hangs in you for the rest of the day, for weeks, who knows. Um, I'm one of those who feels that way about Madame Bovary, for example. And, and when I look back over all of history, I mean, I read Madame Bovary in college, and believe me, that was a long time ago. I, I felt some contempt for her, which, I, by the way, I think Flaubert did. But the older I got, the more I was able to pity her. And when I got older than that, I even dropped the pity and simply was able, I just re, I reread it a few years ago, um, the new translation. My mind just goes blank. But it's, who? Lydia Davis, of course. And it's just wonderful. And it's really where I really recommend it. Um, just a terrific translation. And, and I felt none of those things. I simply felt with her what she experienced. So you think about the effects you want to have. And of course, in the end, um, a reader feels what a reader feels. Um, sometimes a story marches towards its focal point, and you just are swept away. Sometimes the composition is elliptical, and pulls the reader away from the main forward motion, perhaps with subsidiary scenes, perhaps with backstory, perhaps with commentary or summary, and then returns to the forward line, heavier with the weight 
of what you've learned as you go back into the action. And then, and I thought this was sort of fun, there's the matter of brush strokes. Um, my, my daughter uh, was tra trained as an artist. She went to, a, a, an art, to art school. And that's really where, when I started learning to look at paintings. It was long before I started painting myself. But she taught me to look at paintings. And it was a complete eye-opener to me to start paying attention to brushstrokes and, and to realize that I had a preference for kinds of brushstrokes, even, and that I could see what was going on. Um, many of the classical paintings, mean, for a long time, brushstrokes were invisible. The whole idea of what was good was not to be seen. Um, the more modern you are, the more likely you are to for brushstrokes to be um, the signature of, of the painter. Um, a story has a tone, and you know that, but the feel of the story is built in brushstrokes, I would say, by sentences. That sentences are the brushstrokes of prose. How they meander and muse, how sharply they delineate image or action, how the syntax affects the rhythm and the pace and the shape of the mind. Within a single story, the contrast of short and long sentences, of short and long passages, creates emphasis. The close of a story can settle its effect in the reader's mind by virtue of how imagistic it is and by how thrusting or taut or clear or tangled the syntax is. You're, you are constructing effect with every sentence you write. So what does all this meandering add up to, other than the fun of metaphor, mostly the fun? Applying ideas from outside the art form we are practicing. Well, first of all, people have been doing it forever. Dr. Rose said writing a novel is like driving through the dark in which you only see what's ahead of you because of the lights, right? And how many times have you heard a novel described as architecture, so forth and so on? We, we think like that, especially, especially if you're given to thinking like that, if you're creative. So I, I find it fun to think like that. I also hope it makes you think more about two things about your prose, the shape of it, that it does have a shape and that the shape of the, of the prose, the way it lays on the, lays, lies, the way it lies on the page, makes a difference. The contrast of the um, size and shape of paragraphs makes a difference. And maybe particularly that sentences themselves, the syntax, make a great deal of difference. Um, secondly, to identify the key masses and the focal point, I think it's tremendously helpful and important. Where is it going? And what happens after you get there is always the question of narrative. And three, and here's a thought to keep in mind. What can I leave out in order to emphasize what I leave in? Because that's, that's one of the hardest things to grasp and get good at. Like, oh, if I take that out, then they won't know X, but they might think more about Y. It's, it's cutting your own work is, 
is difficult. Writing is hugely intuitive and emotional, and I would say sensory. But a piece of writing is also an object. When we are writing, we see story from the inside. We're part of the inevitable forward motion of it. But when we are ready to revise, it is possible to think of the prose as an object with definable characteristics and to consider its qualities in the light of what our intention is. Or you can just go out and say, that was a lark, like a crossword puzzle or a sudoku or some other word gay. Just a laugh on a summer day. Thank you.